And as you're seated, if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, we've been going through the gospel of Matthew. And as you turn, I want you to think about one day, I want to sit down and write a, write a book about how there's two types of people in the world. You know, there's people who like the edges of brownies and people who like the center. There's people who um, categorize people into different types and people who don't. Um, there are, uh, you know, it's summer, so people are traveling. You know, as you, you travel, there's generally two types of travelers. There's the, uh, they would say the spontaneous uh, travelers who you ask, oh, where are you going? Well, we don't really know. Wherever the wind takes us, where are you staying? We don't really know. Wherever's uh, available. And, you know, there's advantages to that. You can find yourself in unique situations, but then there's disadvantages because you also can find yourself in um, unique situations. And then there's the travelers who are very aware and they're very uh, concerned and they have the detail and they have the, the itinerary and know, but also kind of burdened by all the different possibilities of things that could go wrong along the way. And here in this passage, Jesus is actually addressing two types of hearers, two people who have come to him and they're following him. And in one sense, they kind of mirror those two. Uh, he's addressing those who we'll call them the careless. They've been careless. They've listened to his words and they've seen his work and his power, but they're, they're not responding the way they should. They're somewhat indifferent. And then there's the, we'll call them the careful, but they're full of care. They're burdened, they're weighed down, they're weary, they're wounded. And he addresses both of those. And to the careless, Jesus offers a challenge, a stark challenge. But then to the careful, he offers comfort. So what we've been doing the last several weeks is we've kind of just been hovering around Matthew eleven twenty through 30. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what would it mean for your life if you knew that Jesus was your friend? He's a friend of sinners. And we live in a world that's just the real pandemic is a pandemic of isolation and loneliness. And what would it mean if you knew this? And then last week, we looked at the fact that he, he celebrates and draws you into a relationship with his father. And what would it mean if you knew that God was your father and all the, the care and the mercy that comes with this? And as we kind of wrap up this section, what I want us to focus on is the challenge that he offers to the careless in verse 20 through 24, and then the comfort he offers to those who are full of care, uh, the careful and 25 and following. So let's pick up that first thread, because what we're going to see is to those, in essence, the, the unrepentant, Jesus presents himself as the judge, but then to the wounded and the burdened, he presents himself as the Lord of the Sabbath or the giver of rest. So let's start in verse 20. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles or mighty deeds or great works were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on that day of judgment than for you. So here in this first section, he's challenging those who are careless. And remember, this whole section is about Jesus' identity, who he is, and the claims that he's making for himself. And this is going to start a thread that's going to run all through chapter 12, is that he's claiming to be the judge, 
the one who will issue judgment of heaven and earth. It's a remarkable claim. And that's going to be one of the major themes in 12. So he's starting to introduce it here to unpack it, Matthew is. But what I want to notice is what kind of what was their problem? What were they care less about? And when the first, do you notice what he uh, accuses them of? What were they ignoring? He says, if the miracles had been done in you, the mighty deeds, these works, they had been present and had seen him working and heard him speaking, and yet they weren't drawing the proper conclusions. It wasn't changing their life the way it should. Around them, he had done these great miracles. That's actually Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. Matthew gives us this uh, the schema where he gives us these 10 incredible miracle stories. Almost all of them were done in Capernaum, where it's his kind of home base. But John tells us that if we wrote down everything Jesus did, we couldn't fill all the books in the world. He did so much. So we see he's doing things in these different towns. And so you ask, all right, well, what have they seen? It's very similar to when John the Baptist at the beginning of chapter 11 comes and says, are you the one to come? And Jesus says, go tell John what you see. I mean, what do they see? They, they have heard the mute now can praise the Lord, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame are running, the dead have come to life, and yet this is not producing the fruit in them that it should. And notice what fruit does he say it should produce? Repentance. should produce repentance. And, uh, you know, one of the things about these miracles, these mighty deeds, you know, in one sense, these aren't magic tricks. These aren't meant to um, just kind of wow a crowd. The goal of them is to produce repentance, to give evidence that this should lead them to uh, validate the one who's speaking and believe his message. Now notice who he challenges. He challenges three of the just kind of small towns in Galilee. Capernaum was his home base. And then he challenges uh, Chorazan and Bethsaida. And then he compares them to three notorious towns from the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. And you've got to hear the shock that they would have heard of this. So Tyre and Sidon, you know, who is that? That's a coastal town up north. They would have been on the forefront. Kind of, It became a byword for one of the pagan coastal cities that was notorious for economic trade. So this is where you went if you wanted to make money. You know, in our, we, we would compare this like to Wall Street. And so you got to hear when he says, you know, woe to you Bethsaida, um, if the miracles done in, in Tyre or Sidon would have been done there, they would have repented. It's almost, you got to hear that almost like if you hear Jesus saying, uh, woe to you Wichita, because if they would have had the, if, because if, if Wall Street would have had the advantages that you have, Wall Street would have repented. But woe to you Wichita. I mean, that would kind of come across as strange to us. And then Sodom. I mean, Sodom is the notorious paradigmatic city for sexual lunacy. And then you got to hear it like, it's almost like if Jesus said, you know, woe to you, St. Cloud. Because if you would have had the advantage, if, if Las Vegas had the advantages you have, it would have repented, but you haven't. Now that would strike us as odd. But that's what he's saying here. He's calling them out. Notice the problem. They're not doubting like John the Baptist. They're not wrestling. They're struggling. They're completely indifferent. He's there and they don't care. It's shocking. They've seen him work and they're ignoring his work and not listening to his words, and not repenting. 
And then there's this staggering just thing that's, in one sense, is mystifying. D.A. Carson says, you know, this is one of the most challenging sections in the book of Matthew and his opinion, because it brings up so many questions of like God's, in, in judgment, there's an element of contingent knowledge. So this means that God's judgments aren't based, are based not only what people have done, but also on what they would have done if conditions would have been different. So here he looks at Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and said they would have repented if the miracles would have been done there that were done here. And then you can begin to think, well, well why didn't he do them there? Why? Why didn't they repent? He says, to, you know, to summarize at the final judgment, God will take into account not only what we, North Americans, what every North American's moral standing and response to Jesus is, but also the opportunities that we've had. And looking at this passage, James Montgomery Boyce, he said, you know, this is one of the, this, one of the most jarring passages. And he says, I think when I think of the opportunities to believe that we have here in America, you know, I tremble. No nation has ever had the opportunities to repent and believe quite like us. So what he's challenging the care less is they have tremendous opportunities to believe, to hear the gospel, to hear his voice, and they're indifferent. They're ignoring them. So it's worth pausing this morning as we celebrate July 4th, the land of the free, the home of the brave, and tremendous resources, opportunities. What opportunities do we have and then how are we living in the light of those? You know, are there any opportunities in your life you know right now that you're wasting? In this season that you're wasting. But notice what the proper response is to those opportunities. The proper re response is not carpe diem and rise up and seize the day. The proper response is repentance. That's the response. They would have repented. Now let's kind of shift as we shift from the care less. One of the things I think that makes them care Less is their response to revelation. You can kind of see there's three key R's, kind of words you can kind of use as pegs. There's repentance is what they call for. In this next little section, he's going to celebrate revelation and then finally rest. But look, look at, in one sense, what makes us careless and what we don't want to be careless about. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal Him. So there's this element here of, of revelation that the Son has come to reveal something. He's come to be the light. He's the light of the world. And the worst thing you can do is to be careless about that revelation, to ignore the light. You know, he's come to bring light. It's just utter folly to ignore the light that we have. And those mighty deeds were a light. His presence was a light. His word was a light. If you ignore the light, it can be disastrous for your life. You know, this time, you know, one of the things I like to do during the summer is read different, you know, histories, military history, something I like to read. Um, I'm going to be taking uh, several weeks off in the next couple of weeks. And uh, one of my big goals for that several weeks is to go through the whole Band of Brothers series again. And then the, maybe this, the Pacific, if we can get around to that. But uh, in the story of the Pacific, you know, there's all types of stories that, you know, in situations of incredible difficulty and you have to make terrible decisions. There's one haunting story from an uh, aircraft carrier during World War II 
where, you know, the aircraft carrier, one of the biggest threats, danger is submarines coming to sink them. If a submarine is located around you, you have to go, you have to go dark, got to shut off all the lights, can't risk the sinking of the ship with 5,000 men on it. And one specific mission, there were six uh, Allied air, aircraft flight uh, pilots who were out on mission. The aircraft carrier gives a signal. There's a submarine been... Uh, spotted locally, you have to go dark. They have to go completely dark. Now the question is, how can the pilots land? So then they signal back to, to the tower. No, we need a light. We can't land. Negative. We can't turn on the light. And, the, and the, the captain or admiral or whoever's on the ship has to make the decision. Do I now risk the life of the, the 5,000 people? Or do I know that if we don't turn on the lights, they are not going to be able to land? And you know, there's a terrible situation. And what Jesus is challenging those in the area is they're actually, you know, God hasn't left us where we have no light. He's given us the light so we can land and we can live to be a light to our path. And he's given us the light. But then how much worse is it just to ignore it, to ignore that light? You know, we're certain to crash if we ignore the light. So he celebrates this revelation that's been given. And so that's the challenge to those who are careless. He says, don't be careless about these works. Don't be careless about the revelation. It's been given to you. So take advantage of it. But then notice how he comforts the careful or the full of care. You know, here's another, each week I'll give you my summer book recommendation. So here's the next recommendation for this week. This book is called Gentle and Lowly. And it's by Dane Ortland, and it's called The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And this book is really fascinating to me, not so much about what the book is, but how this past year it was one of Crossway's best-selling books, and it became a massive bestseller. And it's a book based that was originally based on uh, kind of meditations on the heart of Christ for the wounded and the weary. And it's an interesting thing. Why did this book become so popular? In fact, one donor at Crossway thought this book was so helpful at this time that they said if any church, if the pastor will sign up, they'll, they'll send you however many books you ask for or how many you know, regular attenders you have. So I signed up for 150 for our church. But then they had such a response. They said, well, we didn't realize the demand be that overwhelming, so you'll have to wait. So I don't know if we'll get any or not, but we'll see. But it's interesting. How did it become so popular and so moving. And kind of the genesis of the book was his father, who's a pastor, was reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon made the comment that the only place in all of the New Testament or all the Gospels where Christ tells us about his heart, what's in his heart is right here. And you know, the heart is kind of like the, the steering wheel of the life. It's what drives all that we do and who we are. And notice what he says. We'll pick up in verse, uh, in verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly or I am gentle and I am humble or lowly in heart. This is my heart. I am gentle and I am humble or I'm meek and lowly and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So notice what type of comfort does Jesus give to those who are full of care? First thing is notice who Jesus is, who he is. He's gentle and he's humble, lowly and humble. 
gentle or lowly. That first word, it's the same word we've seen the Beatitudes, it's the word meek. You translate meek. He's meek, he's gentle, he's lowly. And when we went through the Beatitudes and blessed are the meek, remember that word meek or gentle, it really is, a, is an image, like my favorite image for that is the image of the war horse, the stallion. So here's something with incredible strength and power, but it's controlled. It's at the service of another. It's not, you know, run wild. So this is what gentle, it's power under control. So when he says, come to me, who he is, he's, he's gentle. He's not trigger happy. He's not reactionary. He's not harsh. He's not easily exasperated. He's gentle. But then that phrase, humble or lowly, that's the same in James 4, 6, where it says God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. Or Romans 12, 26, where he says, don't, um, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly or the humble. What does that mean? It means he's accessible, that there's no prerequisites you need to come into his presence. There's no hoops you have to jump through. You don't need a letter of introduction from somebody special or from somebody famous or somebody great. It was interesting to think if Jesus had a web page and on his about me and you clicked on it, what would drop down? What would drop down is gentle and humble. And how different that is from maybe the standard web page about me. Gentle, humble. But then notice who Jesus invites. You know, what would you expect? Come to me, all you who are successful, all you who are bold, all you who are beautiful, all you who are making your way in the world, all you who are self-satisfied. Come to me, uh, you homecoming queens. Come to me, all you who won your senior, senior superlatives. Come to me, all you who are on top. I was watching the NBA playoffs this week, and they were teasing Charles Barkley that they had a Shaq and uh, Kenny Smith. They have a club, and the only way you get in the club is if you have rings. You've got to have championship rings. I, I don't have one, so you have championship rings. Come to me, all you who are winners. This is for winners. Notice what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, heavy laden, tired poor, storm-tossed. Come to me, all you who need a refuge. Come to me, all you who are weak, who are bound. And then notice what he invites them to. He says, come to me, and here's what you will receive. You will receive rest. But then notice what he gives them. Come to me, and you will receive rest. Here's how you get rest. Take my... What would you expect? Do you expect yoke? Here, take my magic memory foam mattress. You will never, you get a hundred nights sleep where you will never sleep like this ever again. It has an automatic foot warmer and a head elevator so you can stop snoring. Take my magic memory foam mattress. Take my, take the keys to my vacation home. Here, come to me all you, here's a pillow and some pills. He actually gives them a yoke. Take my yoke. They went into a yoke. Whoa, that's not eggs. What is that? That's a, that's a tool for work. He says, come, if you want rest, come to me and I'm going to give you work. He gives a work order. It's a tool. It's almost like, come to me if you're tired. Here, take my shovel. I don't know if I want the shovel. Take my yoke. And then notice what he promises. Take my yoke and you, you don't get escape. You actually get equipment to work, and then you get education. Come to me and learn 
Take my yoke so you can work and then learn. You get equipment and education. Your rest, the true rest for your souls comes from education, from learning, from walking with him, from working, from doing, from obedience. Real rest comes to our souls when God's will is being done on earth as it's done in heaven. Real rest comes when we begin to carry something, when we begin to move, when we begin to plow. And you know, that's so paradoxical to how our world thinks about how real freedom comes. Real freedom is throwing off the yokes. Get this yoke off of me, this responsibility, this weight of carrying the yoke of a family or a job or responsibility. Get that off. That's how I get rest. Jesus is the exact opposite. It's taking the appropriate, the proper, this yoke from me that I place on you. And that's when you'll find rest. You find intellectual rest. One of the beauties of the gospel is the way it gives intellectual rest and salvation. He says, I'm the light of the world. And it's his word alone that I believe that makes the best sense of life. It helps us understand, you know, kind of existentially how we make sense of the world. And it helps us understand kind of socially how we make sense of it, intellectually. It gives intellectual rest. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who trained as a physician and then was a pastor in downtown London and used to have, during, like during the war, would have all these different people coming to the church who are, you know, doing different, very uh, high-level tackling intellectual challenges. And used to somewhat jokingly, but in some other sense serious, say, you know, there's no intellectual stimulation quite like really studying the letters of the Apostle Paul. You know, he preached through Romans for 13 years. So he, he would unpack it. Intellectual rest, emotional rest. You know, there's nothing that can give settledness to your heart quite like this. Satisfaction for heart and soul. And one of the great commands that the Lord gives is to rejoice always. So it gives an emotional rest that can provide joy that's not dependent on situation or circumstance. So he says, come, come to me. You know, we live in an age that humility is not really valued. You know, we can have celebrate, you can have a whole month that's dedicated to pride, but could you imagine a whole month dedicated to humility? This is the humble month. Everybody who's humble, you get to celebrate. But this is what the Lord values. This is his value. In Isaiah 66 too. What is the one that the Lord looks upon? Here's the one to whom I will look, but the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. Or Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? What does he desire? Do you love justice? You do mercy, kindness, and walk. How does he want us to walk? Want us to walk humbly. And the beautiful thing, when we look at Christ's life, there is no illustration and demonstration and example of a life filled with humility quite like this. I mean, every aspect of his life was marked by humility. You know, birth in a manger, no place to lay his head, living life where he's touching the unclean, drawing in the outcast, eating with sinners, washing the feet of his disciples instead of demanding his feet be washed. But of course, every week we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate the ultimate example of the humility of Christ who didn't think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he took on the form of the servant. And he stepped out of heaven and he made himself, he was obedient, even to the point of the cross. So here's his invitation and his challenge. His challenge first is all those who are being careless. He says, stop, look at the works that have been done around you and listen to my words and don't ignore them. It should lead you to repentance. And then the beautiful thing about his, his table 
is that the, the, the access to the table is through the path of repentance. And then he calls to those who are full of care. So if you come this morning full of burdens, you're weary, you're tired, you're weighed down, you're the type of person that Jesus, that he, not that he, you're, he doesn't send you away and says, come back when you get yourself together. He says, this is the perfect place. This is when you come to me. So come to me. So as we come to the table, we come and on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this bread represents my body that was broken for you. Take in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he says, this cup represents my blood that shed for a new covenant. And the new covenant is sealed by the forgiveness of sins. So every time you drink it, drink in remembrance of me. And now we're going to take a moment and we're going to pray and ask the Lord to make these things real in our life. And then we're going to pause and I'm going to lead us through a prayer that uh, comes from the, uh, the Book of Common Prayer. And it was a prayer that was written uh, for our nation, is updated to celebrate our nation and ask the Lord his blessings on it. It's written in about 1812-ish, so around that time. So you can hear that. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that you give to all of us when we become um, indifferent. Pray that none of us would live a life of indifference, indifference to your word, indifference to your ways, indifference to your works. We thank you for the tremendous gifts and opportunities and blessings that are all around us. So we ask that you help us. Forgive us for not seeing and for not appreciating, but help us. Help us to... Uh, to make the most of those opportunities and things that you have blessed us with. And we pray now for all those who are full of care, who come weary, who come tired and wounded. We thank you for the tremendous loving invitation that your son offers. And so we come and we lay all of our burdens at your feet. So I pray for anyone who come and they know deep down that they are not at rest. There's not emotional um, they don't have emotional rest or, or, or mental rest, or maybe they feel the social unrest. We ask that you would give them rest and peace in their souls. And now on this day where we remember and celebrate our nation, we, Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, we humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves and a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Bless our land with honorable industry, sound learning, and pure conduct. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogance, and from every evil way. Defend our liberties, fashion us into one united people, the multitudes who've brought, been brought hither out of many kindreds and tongues. Endue us with the spirit of wisdom, those to whom in thy name we entrust the authority of government, that there may be justice and peace at home, that through obedience to thy laws we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. And in this time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness. And in the day of trouble, suffer not our trust in thee to fail. And all of this we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.